Hey everyone, it's Miss Felicia J here and welcome to Love Life and a Beautiful Glass of Red Wine. This is the chapter by chapter episode and we are reading The Five People You Meet in Heaven by Mitch Album. I started this podcast because of my sons and the questions that they asked me and the profound conversations that ensued. I wanted to add to broadening their minds so I suggested they read some of the books that I love to read and that interest me. Well, that didn't quite work out as planned so I came up with the idea of a podcast reading the books that I love, heard about, and wanted to read, etc., etc. So, here I am, reading the books that I feel will inspire my sons, the rest of my children, you, and of course myself. If you have a suggestion, email me at chapterbychapter256 at gmail.com, and I'll put it on the reading list. As I said, this episode, we are reading The Five People You Meet in Heaven by Mitch Album, and we are on page 56 of this book. But before we begin, let's first have a drink, because I like to read and have a little drink beside me. This week, I am drinking a bit of sparkling water with a bit of lemon, and I'm doing that for a reason. So you can check out my other podcast, which is called Love Life in a Beautiful Glass of Red Wine, and I'm talking about that journey there. So you can tune into that podcast and find out why I'm drinking (laughs) lemon water right now. Um, and enjoy that one too, along with this one. But uh, let's get started, shall we? The Five People You Meet in Heaven by Mitch Album, page 56. The second person Eddie meets in heaven. Eddie felt his feet touch ground. The sky was changing again from cobalt cobalt blue to charcoal gray and Eddie was surrounded by fallen trees and blackened rubble. He grabbed his arms, shoulders, thighs, and calves. He felt stronger than before, but when he tried to touch his toes, he could no longer do so. The limberness was gone. No more childish, rubbery sensation. Every muscle he had was as tight as piano wire. He looked around at the lifeless terrain. On a nearby hill lay a busted wagon and the rotting bones of an animal. Eddie felt a hot wind whip across his face. The sky exploded to a flaming yellow, and once again, Eddie ran. He ran differently now, in the hard measured steps of a soldier. He heard thunder, or something like thunder, explosions or bomb blasts, and he instinctively fell to the ground, landed on his stomach, and pulled himself along by his forearms. The sky burst open and gushed rain, a thick brownish downpour, and Eddie lowered his head and crawled along in the mud, spitting away the dirty water that gathered around his lips. Finally, he felt his head brush against something solid. He looked up to see a rifle dug into the ground, with a helmet sitting atop it, and a set of dog tags hanging from the grip. Blinking through the rain, he fingered the dog tags, then scrambled back wildly in a porous, into a porous wall of stringy vines that hung from a massive banyan t- tree. He dove into their darkness. He pulled his knees into a crouch. He tried to catch his breath. Fear had found him, even in heaven. The name on the dog tags was his. Young men go to war, sometimes because they have to, sometimes because they want to. Always they feel they are supposed to. This comes from the sad, layered stories of life, which over the centuries centuries has seen courage confused with picking up arms and cowardice confused with laying them down. When his country entered the war, Eddie woke up early one rainy morning, shaved, combed back his hair, combed back his hair, and enlisted. Others were fighting. He would too. 
His mother did not want him to go. His father, when informed of the news, lit a cigarette and blew the smoke out slowly. When, was all he asked. Since he'd never fired an actual rifle, Eddie began to practice at the shooting arcade at Ruby Pier. You paid a nickel and the machine hummed and you squeezed the trigger and fired metal slugs at pictures of jungle animals, a lion or a giraffe. Eddie went every evening after running the brake levers at Little Folk's Miniature Railway. Ruby Pier had added a number of new, smaller attractions because roller coasters after the Depression had become too expensive. The Miniature Railway was pretty much just that. The train cars no higher than a grown man's thigh. Eddie, before enlisting, had been working to save money to study engineering. That was his goal. He wanted to build things, even if his brother Joe kept saying, Come on, Eddie, you aren't smart enough for that. But once the war started, pure business dropped. Most of Eddie's customers now were women alone with children, their fathers gone to fight. Sometimes the children asked Eddie to lift them over his head, and when Eddie complied, he saw the mother's sad smiles. He guessed it was the right lift, but the wrong pair of arms. Soon Eddie figured he would join those distant men, and his life of greasing tracks and running brake levers would be over. War was his call to manhood. Maybe someone would miss him, too. On one of those final final nights, Eddie was bent over the small arcade rifle, firing with deep, deep concentration. Pang! Pang! He tried to imagine actually shooting at the enemy. Pang! Would they make a noise when he shot them? Pang! Or would they just go down, like the lions and giraffes? Pang! Pang! Practicing to kill, are you, lad? Mickey, Mickey Shea was standing behind Eddie. His hair was the color of French vanilla ice cream wet with sweat, and his face was red from whatever he'd been drinking. Eddie shrugged and returned to his shooting. Pang, pang, another hit. Pang, another. Hmph, Mickey grunted. Eddie wished Mickey would go away and let him work on his aim. He could feel the old drunk behind him. He could hear his labored breathing, the nasal hissing in and out, like a bike tire being inflated by a pump. Eddie kept shooting. Suddenly he felt a painful grip on his shoulder. Listen to me, lad, Mickey's voice was a low growl. War is no game. If there's a shot to be made, you make it. You hear? No guilt, no hesitation. You fire, and you fire, and you don't think about who you're shooting or killing or why. You hear me? You want to come home again? You just fire. You don't think. He squeezed even harder. It's the thinking that gets you killed. Eddie turned and stared at Mickey. Mickey slapped him hard on the cheek, and Eddie instinct instinctively raised his hand, raised his fist to retaliate. But Mickey, but, Mickey, sorry. but Mickey belched and wobbled backward. Then he looked at Eddie as if he was going to cry. The mechanical gun stopped humming. Eddie's nickel was up. Young men go to war, sometimes because they have to, sometimes because they want to. A few days later, Eddie packed a duffel bag and left the pier behind. The rain stopped. Eddie, shivering and wet beneath the banyan tree, exhaled a long, hard breath. He pulled the vines apart and saw the rifle and helmet still stuck in the ground. He remembered why soldiers did this. It marked the graves of their dead. He crawled out on his knees, off in the distance, below a small ridge, where the remains of a village bombed and burnt into little more than rubble. For a moment, Eddie stared, his mouth slightly open, his eyes bringing the scene into tighter focus. Then his chest tightened like a man who had just had bad news broken. This place, he knew it. It haunted his dreams. Smallpox, a voice suddenly said. Eddie spun. 
Smallpox, typhoid, tetanus, yellow fever. It came from above, somewhere in the tree. I never did find out what yellow fever was. Hell, I never met anyone who had it. The voice was strong, with a slight southern drawl and gravely edges like a man who'd been yelling for hours. I got all those shots for all those diseases, and I died here anyhow, healthy as a horse. The tree shook. Some small fruit fell in front of Eddie. How you like them apples? The voice said. Eddie stood up and cleared his throat. Come out, he said. Come up, the voice said. And Eddie was in the, in the tree, near the top, which was as tall as an office building. His legs straddled a large limb, and the earth below seemed a long drop away. Through the smaller branches and thick leaves, Eddie could make out the shadowy figure of a man in army fatigues, sitting back against the tree trunk. His face was covered with a cold black substance. His eyes glowed red like tiny bulbs. Eddie swallowed hard. Captain, he whispered, is that you? They had served together in the army. The captain was Eddie's commanding officer. They fought in the Philippines and they parted in the Philippines and Eddie had never seen him again. He had heard he died in combat. A wisp of cigarette smoke appeared. They explained the rules to you, soldier? Eddie looked down. He saw the earth far below, yet he could not fall. I'm dead, he said. You got that much right. And you're dead? Got that right, too. And you're my second person? The captain held up his cigarette. He smiled as if to say, Can you believe you get to smoke up here? Then he took a long drag and blew out a small white cloud. Bet you didn't expect me, huh? Eddie learned many things during the war. He learned to ride atop a tank. He learned to shave with cold water in his helmet. He learned to be careful when shooting from a foxhole, lest he hit a tree and wound himself with deflected shrapnel. He learned to smoke. He learned to march. He learned to cross a rope bridge while carrying all at once an overcoat, a radio, a carbine, a gas mask, a tripod for a machine gun, a backpack, and several bandoliers on his shoulder. He learned how to drink coffee, the worst coffee he'd ever tasted. He learned a few words in a few foreign languages. He learned to spit a great distance. He learned the nervous cheer of a soldier's first survived combat when the men slap each other and smile as if it's over. We can go home now. And he learned the sinking depression of a soldier's second combat when he realizes the fighting does not stop at one battle. There is more, and more after that. He learned to whistle through his teeth. He learned to sleep on rocky earth. He learned that scabies are itchy little mites that burrow into your skin, especially if you've worn the same filthy clothes for a week. He learned a man's bones really do look white when they burst through the skin. He learned to pray quickly. He learned in which pocket to keep the letters to his family and Marguerite in case he should be found dead by his fellow soldiers. He learned that sometimes you are sitting next to a buddy in a dugout, whispering about how hard you are, how hungry you are, and the next instant there's a small whoosh and the buddy slumps over and his hunger is no longer an issue. He learned, as one year turned to two and two years, two years turned toward three, that even strong, muscular men vomit on their shoes when a transport plane is about to unload them, and even officers talk in their sleep the night before combat. He learned how to take a prisoner, although he never learned how to become one. Then one night on a Philippine island, his group came under heavy fire, and they scattered for shelter, and the skies were lit, and Eddie heard one of his buddies down in a ditch weeping like a child, and he yelled at him, Shut up, will ya? And he realized the man was crying because there was an enemy soldier standing over him with a rifle at his head, and Eddie felt something cold at his neck, and there was one behind him, too. The captain stubbed out his cigarette. He was older than the men in Eddie's troop, 
a lifetime military man with a lanky swagger and a prominent chin that gave him resemblance to a movie actor of the day. Most of the soldiers liked him well enough, although he had a short temper and a habit of yelling inches from your face you could see his teeth already yellowed from tobacco. Still, the captain always promised he would leave no one behind, no matter what happened, and the men took comfort in that. Captain, Eddie said, still, again still stunned. Affirmative. Sir, no need for that, but much obliged. It's been... You look... Like the last time you saw me, he grinned, then spat over the tree branch. He saw Eddie's confused expression. You're right. Ain't no reason to spit up here. You don't get sick either. Your breath is always the same, and the chow is incredible. Chow? Eddie didn't get any of this. Captain, look. There's some mistake. I still don't know why I'm here. I had a nothing life, see? I worked maintenance. I lived in the same apartment for years. I took care of rides, ferris wheels, roller coasters, stupid little rocket ships. It was nothing to be proud of. I just kind of drifted. What I'm saying is... Eddie swallowed. What am I doing here? The captain looked at him with those glowing red eyes, and Eddie resisted asking the other question he now wondered after the blue man. Did he kill Captain too? You know, I've been wondering, the captain said, rubbing his chin. The men from our unit, did they stay in touch? Willingham, Morton, Smitty, did you ever see those guys? Eddie remembered the names. The truth was they had not kept in touch. War could bond men like a magnet, but like a magnet it could repel them too. The things they saw, the things they did, sometimes they just wanted to forget. To be honest, sir, we all kind of fell out, he shrugged. Sorry. The captain nodded as if nodded as if he expected as much. And you, you went back to that fun park where we all promised to go if we got it alive? Free rides for all the GIs? Two girls per guy in the tunnel of love? Isn't that what you said? Eddie nearly smiled. That was what he had said. What they all had said. But when the war... But when the war ended, nobody came. Yeah, I went back, Eddie said. And? And I never left. I tried. I made plans. But this damn leg, I don't know. Nothing worked out. Eddie shrugged. The captain studied his face. His eyes narrowed. His voice lowered. You still juggle, he asked. Go. You go. You go. The enemy soldiers screamed and poked them with bayonets. Eddie, Smitty, Morton, Rabazzo, and the captain were herded down a steep hill, hands on their heads. Mortar shells exploded around them. Eddie saw a figure through the trees. Run, sorry, saw a figure run through the trees, then fall in a clap of bullets. He tried to take mental snapshots as they marched in the darkness. Huts, roads, whatever he could make out, knowing, make out, knowing such information would be precious for an escape. A plane roared in the distance filling Eddie with a sudden sickening wave of despair. It is the inner torture of every captured soldier, the short distance between freedom and seizure. If Eddie could only jump up and grab the wing of that plane, he could fly away from this mistake. Instead, he and the others were bound at the wrists and ankles. They were dumped inside a bamboo barracks. The barracks sat on stilts above the muddy ground, and they remained there for days, weeks, months, forced to sleep on burlap sacks stuffed with straw, a clay jug served as their toilet. At night, the enemy guards would crawl under the hut and listen to their conversations. As time passed, they said less and less. They grew thin and weak. Their ribs grew visible, even Rabazio, who had been a chunky kid when he enlisted. Their food consisted of rice balls filled with salt, 
and once a day some brownish broth with grass floating in, in it. One night, Eddie plucked a dead hornet from the bowl. It was missing its wings. The others stopped eating. Their captors seemed unsure of what to do with them. In the evenings, they would enter with bayonets and wiggle their blades at the Americans' noses, yelling in a foreign language, waiting for answers. It was never productive. There were only four of them, four of them near as Eddie could tell. And the captain guessed that it, sorry, that Eddie could tell, and the captain guessed that they too had drifted away from a larger unit, and were as often happens in real war, making it up day by day. Their faces were gaunt and bony, with dark nubs of hair. One looked too young to be a soldier. Another had the most crooked teeth Eddie had ever seen. The captain called them Crazy One, Crazy Two, Crazy Three, and Crazy Four. We don't want to know their names, he said, and we don't want them knowing ours. Men adapt to captivity, some better than others. Morton, a skinny, chattering youth from Chicago, would fidget whenever he heard noises from outside, rubbing his chin and mumbling, oh damn, oh damn, oh damn, until the others told him to shut up. Smitty, a fireman's son from Brooklyn, was quiet most of the time, but he often seemed to be swallowing something, his Adam's apple lopping up and down. Eddie later learned he was chewing on his tongue. Rabazzo, the young red-headed kid from Portland, Oregon, kept a poker face during the wa waking hours, but at night he often woke up screaming, Not me! Not me! Eddie mostly seethed. He clenched a fist and slapped it into his palm, hours on end knuckles to skin, like the anxious baseball player he had been in his youth. At night he dreamed he was back at the pier, on the derby horse, carousel, where five customers raced in circles until the bell rang. He was racing his buddies, or his brother, or Marguerite, but then the dream turned and the four crazies were on the adjacent ponies, poking at him, sneering. Years of waiting at the pier for a ride to finish, for the waves to pull back, for his father to speak to him, had trained Eddie in the art of patience. He wanted out and he wanted revenge. He ground his jaws and he slapped his palm, and he thought about all the fights he'd been in back in his old neighborhood, the time he'd sent two kids to the hospital with a garbage can lid. He pictured what he'd do to these guards if, he didn't have, if they didn't have guns. Then one morning, the prisoners were awakened by screaming and flashing bayonets, and the four crazies had them up and bound and led them into a shaft. There was no light. The ground was cold. There were picks and shovels and metal buckets. It's a goddamn coal mine, Morton said. From that day forward, Eddie and the others were forced to strip coal from the walls to help the enemy's war effort. They shoveled, sorry, some shoveled, some scraped, some carried pieces of slate and built triangles to hold up the ceiling. There were other prisoners there, too, foreigners who didn't know English and who looked at Eddie with hollow eyes. Speaking was prohibited. One cup of water was given every few hours. The prisoners' face, by the end of the day, were hopelessly black and their necks and shoulders throbbed from leaning over. For the first few months of this captivity, Eddie went, up, went to sleep with Marguerite's picture in his helmet, propped up in front of him. He wasn't much for praying, but he prayed just the same, making up the words and keeping count each night, saying, Lord, I'll give you these six days if you give me six days with her. I'll give you these nine days if I get nine days with her. I'll give you these sixteen days if, you get, if I get sixteen days with her. Then during the fourth month, something happened. Wabazo developed an ugly skin rash and severe diarrhea. He couldn't eat a thing. At night, he sweated through his filthy clothes until they were soaking wet. He soiled himself. There were no clean clothes to give him, so he slept naked on, a bur on the burlap, 
and the captain placed his sack over him like a blanket. The next day, down in the mine, Rabazo could barely stand. The four crazies showed no pity. When he slowed, they poked him with sticks to keep him scraping. Leave him be, Eddie growled. Crazy too, the most brutal of their captors, slammed Eddie with a bayonet butt. He went down, a shot of pain spreading between his shoulder blades. Rabazo scraped a few more pieces of coal, then collapsed. Crazy too screamed for him to get up. He's sick, Eddie yelled, struggling to his feet. Crazy Two slammed him down again. Shut up, Eddie, Morton whispered, for your own good. Crazy Two leaned over Rabazo. He pulled back his eyelids. Rabazo moaned. Crazy Two made an exaggerated smile and cooed, as if he were dealing with a baby. He went, ah, and laughed. He laughed looking at all of them, making eye contact, making sure they were watching him. Then he pulled out his pistol, rammed it into Rabazo's ear, ear and shot him in the head. Eddie felt his body rip in half. His eyes blurred and his brain went numb. The echo of the gunshot hung in the mine as Rabazo's face soaked into a spreading pool of blood. Sorry, spreading puddle of blood. Morton put his hands over his mouth. The captain looked down. Nobody moved. Crazy Two kicked black dirt over the body, then glared at Eddie and spat at his feet. He yelled something at Crazy Three and Four, both of whom seemed as stunned as the prisoners. For a moment, moment, Crazy Three shook his head and mumbled, as if saying a prayer, his eyelids lowered and, mo and his lips moving furiously. But Crazy Two waved the gun again, waved the gun and yelled again, and Crazy Three and Crazy Four slowly moved, lifted Rabazo's body by its feet and dragged it along the mine floor, leaving a trail of wet blood, which in the dark looked like spilt oil. They dropped him against a wall next to a pickaxe. After that, Eddie stopped praying. He stopped counting days. He and the captain spoke only of escaping before they all met the same fate. The captain figured the enemy's war effort was desperate. That, that was why they needed every half-dead prisoner to scrape coal. Each day in the mine, there were fewer and fewer bodies. At night, Eddie heard bombing. It seemed to be getting closer. If things got too bad, the captain figured, their captains would bail out, destroy everything. He'd seen the ditches dug beyond the prisoner, prisoner barracks, the large oil bearers positioned up the steep hill. The oil's for burning the evidence, the captain whispered. They're digging our graves. Three weeks later, under a hazy moon sky, Crazy Three was inside the barracks standing guard. He had two large rocks, about the size of bricks, which in his boredom he tried to juggle. He kept dropping them, picking them up, tossing them high and dropping them again. Eddie, covered in black ash, looked up, annoyed at the thudding noise. Thudding noise. He'd been trying to sleep, but now he lifted himself slowly. His vision cleared. He felt his nerves pricking to life. Captain, he whispered, you ready to move? The captain raised his head. What are you thinking? Them rocks, Eddie, noticed toward the uh, Eddie nodded toward the guard. What about him? The captain said. I can juggle, Eddie whispered. The captain squinted. What? But Eddie was already yelling at the guard. Hey, yo, you're doing it wrong. He made a circular motion with his palms. This way. You do it this way. Gimme. He held out his hands. I can juggle. Gimme. Crazy Three looked at him cautious, cautiously. Of all the guards, Eddie felt he had his best chance with this one. Crazy Three had occasionally sneaked the prisoners pieces of bread and tossed them through the small hut hole that served as a window. Eddie made the circular motion again and smiled. Crazy Three approached, stopped, 
went back for his bayonet, then walked the two rocks over to Eddie. Like this, Eddie said, and he began to juggle effortlessly. effortlessly. He had learned when he was seven years old from an Italian sideshow man who juggled six plates at once. Eddie had spent countless hours practicing on the boardwalk, pebbles, rubber balls, whatever he could find. It was no big deal. Most kids, peer kids, could juggle. But now he worked the two rocks fiercely, juggling them faster and pressing the guard. Then he stopped, held the rocks out, and said, Get me another one. Crazy Three grunted, Three rocks, see? Eddie held up three fingers, three. By now Morton and Smitty were sitting up. The captain was moving closer. Where are we going here? Smitty mumbled. If I can get one more rock, Eddie mumbled back. Crazy Three opened the bamboo door and did what Eddie hoped he'd do. He yelled for the others. Crazy One appeared with a fat rock, and Crazy Two followed him in. Crazy Three thrust the rock at Eddie and yelled something. Then he stepped back, grinned at the others, and motioned for them to sit, as if to say, watch this. Eddie tossed the rocks into a rhythmic weave. Each one was as big as his palm. He sang a carnival tune. Da, 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 da. The guards laughed. Eddie laughed. The captain laughed. Forced laughter. Buying time. Get closer, Eddie sang, pretending the words were part of the melody. Morton and Smitty slid gently in, feigning interest. The guards were enjoying the diversion. Their posture slackened. Eddie tried to, swa to swallow his breathing just a little longer. He threw one rock high into the air, then juggled the lower two, then caught the third, then did it again. Ah, Crazy Three said despite himself. You like that, Eddie said. He was juggling faster now. He kept tossing one rock high and watching his captor's eyes as they followed it into the air. He sang, da-da-da-da-da, then, when I count to three, then, da-da-da-da-da, then, the captain, then, captain, the guy on the left. Crazy Two frowned suspiciously. Reddy smiled the way jugglers back at Ruby Pier smiled when they were losing the audience. Looky here, looky here, looky here, Eddie cooed. Greatest show on earth, buddy boy. Eddie went faster, then counted. One, two then tossed a rock much higher than before. The crazies watched it rise. Now, Eddie yelled. In mid-jungle, ju sorry, in mid-juggle, he grabbed a rock and, like the good baseball pitcher he'd always been, whipped it hard into the face of Crazy Two, breaking his nose. Eddie caught the second rock and threw it, left-handed squared, left-handed square into the chin of Crazy One, who fell back as the captain jumped in, jumped him, grabbing his bayonet. Crazy Three, momentarily frozen, reached for his pistol and fired wildly as Morton and Smitty tackled his legs. The door burst open and Crazy Four ran in, and Eddie threw the last rock at him and missed his head by inches, but as he ducked, the captain was waiting against the wall with the bayonet, which he drove through Crazy Four's ribcage so hard the two of them tumbled through the door. Eddie, powered by adrenaline, leaped on Crazy Two and pounded his face harder than he'd ever pounded anyone back at Picton Avenue. He grabbed a loose rock and slammed it against his skull again and again, until he looked at his hands and saw a hideous purplish goo that he realized was blood and skin and coal and, a and coal ash mixed together. Then he heard a gunshot and grabbed his head, smearing the goo on his temples. He looked up and saw Smitty standing over him, holding an enemy pistol. Crazy Two's body went slack. He was bleeding from his chest. For a bazo, Smitty mumbled. Within minutes, all four guards were dead. The prisoners, thin and barefooted and covered in blood, were running now for the steep hill. 
Eddie had expected gunfire, more guards to fight, but there was no one. The other huts were empty. In fact, the entire camp was empty. Eddie wondered how long it had been, just the four crazies and them. The rest probably took off when they heard the bombing, the captain whispered. We're the last group left. The oil barrels were pitched at the first rise of the hill. Less than a hundred yards away was the entrance to the coal mine. There was a supply hut nearby, and Morton made sure it was empty, then ran inside. He emerged with an armful of grenades, rifles, and two primitive-looking flamethrowers. Let's burn it down, he said. Today is Eddie's birthday. The cake reads, good luck, fight hard. And on the side, along the vanilla frosted edge, someone has added the words, come home soon, in blue squiggly letters. But the O-O-N is squeezed together, so it reads more like, son or come home son. Eddie's mother has already cleaned and pressed the clothes he will wear the next day. She hung them on a hanger on his bedroom closet doorknob and put one pair of dress shoes beneath them. Eddie is in the kitchen fooling with his young Romanian cousins, his hands behind his back as they try to punch his stomach. One points out the kitchen window at the Parisian carousel, which is lit for evening customers. Horses, the child exclaims. The front door opens and Eddie hears a voice that makes his heart jump even now. He wonders if this is a weakness he shouldn't be taking off to war. Hiya, Eddie, Marguerite says. And there she is, in the kitchen doorway looking wonderful, and Eddie feels that familiar tickle in his chest. She brushes a bit of rainwater from her hair and smiles. She has a small box in her hands. I brought you something, for your birthday and, well, for your leaving, too. She smiles again. Eddie wants to hug her so badly, he thinks he'll burst. He doesn't care what's in the box. He only wants to remember her holding it out for him. As always with Marguerite, Eddie mostly wants to freeze time. This is swell, he says. She laughs. You haven't opened it yet. Listen, he moves closer. Do you? Eddie, someone yells from the other room. Come on and blow out the candles. Yeah, we're hungry. Oh, Sal, shh. Well, we are. There is cake and beer and milk and cigars and a toast to Eddie's success. And there is a moment where his mother begins to cry and she hugs her other son, Joe, who is staying stateside on account of his flat feet. Later that night, Eddie walks Marguerite along the promenade. He knows the, the name of every ticket taker and, fruit, and food vendor, and they all wish him luck. Some of the older women get teary-eyed, and Eddie figures they have sons of their own already gone. He and Marguerite buy saltwater taffy, molasses, and tea berry and root berry fl flavors. Root beer flavors, rather. They pick out pieces from the small white bag, play-fighting each other's fingers. As the, at the Penny Arcade, Eddie pulls a plaster hand and the arrow goes past clammy and harmless and mild all the way to hot stuff. You're really strong, Marguerite says. Hot stuff, Eddie says, making a muscle. At the end of the night, they stand on the boardwalk in a fashion they have, they have seen in the movies, holding hands, leaning against the, the railing. Out on the sand, an old rag picker has built a small fire from sticks and torn towels and is huddling by it, settling in for the night. You have to... You don't have to ask me to wait, Marguerite says suddenly. Eddie swallows. I don't? She shakes her head. Eddie smiles. Saved from a question that has been caught in his throat all night. He feels as if a string has just shot from his heart and looped around her shoulders, pulling her close and making her his. He loves her more in this moment than he thought he could ever love anyone. A drop of rain hits Eddie's forehead. Then another. He looks up at the gathering clouds. Hey, hot stuff, Marguerite says. 
She smiles, but then her face droops, and she blinks back water, although Eddie cannot tell if it's the raindrops or tears. Don't get killed, okay? She says. And that is all for today. We're going to stop on page 80 of this book. I trust that you guys enjoyed it. I am really enjoying this book. It's actually one of my very favorites. But then again, I have a lot of favorites, I guess. I love books. How about that? Um, but that this book, this is a wonderful one for me. But that's all for this week. I trust that you have enjoyed this week, this episode. I trust that it's broadened your mind, inspired your thoughts, or a conversation, changed your word, world, or entertained you. Whatever it's done for you, I trust that it has served you. And I want to apologize to everyone for this week's entry coming out on a Wednesday. As we all know, life happens, and life has happened along with some technical issues. So as a result, we're doing this this Wednesday. But don't worry, we will be starting again on Sunday as usual, starting this Sunday coming. So don't worry about any of it. We're getting back on track, and we'll be continuing reading The Five People You Meet in Heaven by Mitch Album. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I truly appreciate each and every one of you. Check us out on Instagram at chapter by chapter 256. Also, check out Atmosphilicia J. As I told you, check out my other podcast, Love Life in a Beautiful Gas of Red Wine. I would so love for all of you to join me there as well. Have a great day. Have a great week. Take care of yourself and each other. This is Miss Felicia J. Until next time, be well.